Hello fellow survivors and welcome to another episode of At the End of the Line. I'm your host and amateur exologist Richard Oliver. In the last two episodes I told you all about our trip to London, how we were tricked into giving the White Adler Company access to the authority of the country of England and allowing Elizabeth Lizzie Cooper to become Queen of England. Their plans went awry when we were attacked by mutants. I ran away and have no idea what happened to the White Adler Company, their mercenaries and indeed, Lizzie Cooper. This also, of course, includes my good friend, Colt. Despite Colt's portrayal and that he had been working for the Weird Adler Company all along, I still think of him as a friend. He has saved my life too many times not to be. When I made it back to the train, the characters that had been the base of the Weird Adler Company had vanished, and no one was sure what had happened to them. But whatever technology, people, and ideas they had stolen went with those characters. While Lizzie hasn't resurfaced, the Wade Adler Company continued to insist that England belongs to them, and have ended protracted legal battles with the central government authority, who viewed themselves as the true inheritors of all previous world governments. While this is getting settled, the CGA has instructed us to carry on with our journey, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Now, with the exit of the Wade Adler Company, there was something of a funding gap, but fortunately two organisations have stepped in. First, the Phoenix Foundation a not-for-profit organisation determined to rebuild and improve the world, created by socially conscious and evidence-focused, extremely rich individuals who see the benefit in a function and happy civilization. However, they are only concerned with funding some of the train's functions, and luckily for me, this includes this podcast, and they have also promised me absolute creative control. Secondly, Brave New World Analysis. A recent addition to the CGA dedicated to a better understanding of the world after the apocalypse. So much has changed, dozens, perhaps hundreds of new species of creature, new weather, new natural phenomena, a whole new world to study. It marks a positive step in reconstruction, but taking funding from them will mean all manner of new personnel and diverting to train to suit their research. So we have lost the Weird Adler Company and a fair few of the soldiers of fortune types who were in their employ, but we have gained some more CGA bureaucrats and philanthropic billionaires, or at least their employees. Aside from Cold's fate, what has concerned me the most is the changes this will bring to the dining car. Under the Wade Adler Company, we enjoyed what must have been one of the finest dining experiences left in the world. I am overjoyed to say that the entire staff has been kept on, and while there will be some changes to the menu, the quality will remain the same. Despite all that has happened, the show and our journey must continue, and after our detour to London, we found ourselves heading to the northwest of England, our vague destination being the small but picturesque town of Longshadow. It was an old town, with some parts of it dating back to Roman times, and there was a lot of history in it. Longshadow was probably most famous for the beautiful 12th century church on the edge of town. As regular listeners will know, I don't really like getting out there and investigating too much, but the Phoenix Foundation are encouraging me to be a little more proactive. I was tempted to refuse out of a mixture of laziness, cowardice and spite, but I fought back to the whole business with the Weird Adler Company, and if I'd just been a little bit more proactive, I might have realised what was going on a little earlier. It is embarrassing to a man who claims to be a journalist to be so utterly clueless of what is going on around them. To their credit, the Phoenix Foundation have backed up their requests with additional resources and equipment. They provided me a range of weapons to choose from, and as always, I turned them down, 
but did partake some of the more useful equipment, including a flare gun. While in a pinch it could be used as a weapon, I highly doubt I'd be able to pull that off. More realistically, I worried about hurting myself and read the instructions several times. With Colt gone and Zofia not terribly interested in a provincial English town, I was prepared to go alone, but when I stepped off the train, I saw Ned Vasca several steps ahead of me, surveying the landscape with binoculars. It turned out Vasca really wanted to visit the church. Annette Vasca is one of the most intriguing individuals on board the train, a woman who tirelessly works to save and preserve works of art and objects of cultural significance, and would happily get her hands dirty in this pursuit. It wasn't so much that we explored together, but were usually adjacent. I did feel somewhat safer with Vasca, an exceedingly capable person who had saved the entire train from mind-altering monsters some months back. It was true that if it was a choice between saving my life and a Henry Moore sculpture, I would be worried as to whether she'd save me or the work of art, but hopefully it wouldn't come to that. There was some damage to the track ahead which prevented the train from reaching the station, so Vasca and I walked along the track in an awkward silence. The journey only taken around 20 minutes, but it felt much longer. The town was deserted and from the look of some of the buildings had been for some time. It was common to find towns and villages that had been completely abandoned. Some had a distinct feeling of the Marie Celeste ghost ship, activities that had been interrupted, left half finished. The church dominated the landscape of the small town and was visible from just about anywhere in the area. The church had survived relatively well, and the only damage was from the normal wear and tear of a building left unattended for years. To be honest, I found the church somewhat disappointing but Vasco was clearly enraptured. She had the look of a person carefully appreciating a piece of art and slowly walked back and forth outside, taking it in from different angles. I decided to have a look inside, but the interior was no more interesting than the exterior and I wandered around aimlessly. It was then that something caught my eye. It was a small grey rectangle stuck to the wall. A red X had been painted on it. I then spotted another and another soon realising the building was covered with them. I tried to pry one from the wall for further investigation, but it was stuck fast. I turned and saw Vasco in the doorway. She ran towards me, grabbed my arm and pulled me from the church. Once we were outside, I pulled myself free from Vasco's grasp and was about to demand what she thought she was doing when the church disappeared. First, there was a loud buzzing sound and then the church began to shake slightly and in a matter of seconds it dissolved before us, leaving behind nothing but a fine, chalky powder. I stared at the space the church had just occupied, and then realised it was happening all around us, buildings collapsing into great mounds of dust. In less than a minute, virtually every building was gone. The train station was still there, as were a few other buildings, but that was it. I don't know when I started running, but I did. I certainly didn't know where I was running to. I had no idea what was going on or where I was safe. But it didn't take long for Vasca to catch up with me and she shook me, trying to snap me out of my panic. I took several deep breaths and saw that Vasca was covered in the dusting of the powder. And then I saw, so was I. What just happened? I asked Vasca, but she wasn't paying attention to me. She was looking into the sky. I followed her gaze and saw it. A vehicle slowly descending, a ring of metal with giant propeller blades bolted onto it. 
It looked vaguely impossible, and I was glad Vasco was with me and was seeing it too. As the vehicle neared the ground, tentacle-like cables whipped out and bore onto the surface, guiding the vehicle into its landing. The instant it touched the ground, doors opened and people walked out and appeared to be carrying a variety of tools. What are they doing? I asked. Tidying up, said Vasco. We are taking cover behind one of the few structures still standing, and I had no intention of alerting these people to my presence. Vasca, however, felt differently. She grabbed my bag and retrieved the flare gun from inside, pointed it into the air over the ship, and fired. The projectile soared into the air, and even in the daylight was bright enough to get their attention. Stay hidden, Vasca said, and strode out confidently, slinging her rifle down from her shoulder as she walked, and taking careful aim. The newcomers had hardly scattered, some rushing back to their ship, others just taking cover. Vasca fired as she walked forward, and I saw at least one person hit. No one returned fire, and I wondered if they were even armed. It was unescapable that Vasca knew who these people were. She did not simply shoot strangers. She had recognised the odd grey devices in the church, and she knew that they liked to tidy up after their work. Vasca paused to reload, and two people rushed her, and in the brief but violent encounter, both ended up on the ground. I think one of them was unconscious. Vasca abandoned her rifle and actually drawn her pistol to kill the two people when she was finally taken down. One of the cables had pulled itself from the ground and whipped at her, sending her flying. Before she could stand, a group of people had dived onto her and wrestled her weapons away. I was trying to decide what to do when I became aware of someone behind me. I slowly turned and saw a man standing a few feet away from me, and what struck me first was just how stunningly handsome he was. What I noticed next, and was sufficiently important to distract me from his beauty, was the pistol in the shoulder holster. He said, in a very polite manner, and with only the barest suggestion of menace, that I should come with him back to his ship. Whilst rebuilding civilization, the Central Government Authority is very concerned about setting up a potential dystopia. Now, I've been criticised on this podcast before for categorising some of the new societies around the world as dystopias, but I feel on safe ground in saying nobody wants to create a dystopia. As such, the CGA set up the Dystopia Steering Group, a meeting designed to avoid some dystopian pitfalls. Here are some of the selected actions and recommendations from the minutes of the most recent meet. Apologies were recorded from Dr. Noah Alstor. In the course of his work, Dr. Alstor was transported back to 14th century France, and a manuscript recently discovered in the French National Archives contained Dr. Alstor's apologies. Discussion on artificial intelligence. It was agreed to make a recommendation to the CGA that further practical development of artificial intelligence should be combined with work into artificial kindness, artificial cooperation, and artificial anxiety. The first two being to engender positive feelings towards humanity, and the anxiety to undermine its own self-confidence. Professor Grace Vorman submitted a report concerning fringe groups who were proposing abandoning all science and modern technology. These groups blame science and technology for the apocalypse. While Professor Vorman stated that the groups were dangerously dogmatic and prone to violence, their inability to coordinate their actions, transport themselves or arm themselves without the technology they hate, has severely limited their effectiveness. Professor Vorman cited the almost three months of sending letters back and forth to organise an act of sabotage in a software company 
which failed when they refused to use the elevator on a point of principle. Mr. Michael Bund and Dr. Min Hee Nam debated the merits of developing technology to access people's minds to investigate criminal activity and or dangerous tendencies. Both Mr. Bund and Dr. Norm compared the other to the worst tyrants throughout history and demanded the other be ejected from the group for their extremist beliefs. The issue of utilising this technology was rather lost in the ensuing argument and will be returned to the agenda for the next meeting. The central issue of the meeting was whether the CGA should make laws against fermenting a dystopia. With the group split between thinking this a sensible proposition given the numerous organisations looking to bring about radical changes to society, whereas the others believing that the law itself would bring about a dystopian society. Agenda item number nine dealt with suggestions for new ways to organise society and with the group deciding whether this could lead to a dystopian outcome. Ideas that ordered society based on the following were rejected as too likely leading to a dystopia. Intelligence, physical strength, chess playing ability, height, weight, taste in music, head circumference and phonology in general, and the ability to tell the difference between regular carbonated sugar water and diet carbonated sugar water. Instead, the group recommended to stick to a society largely based on merit, with those possessing relevant qualifications, talent and experience making the most progress, but also remembering that a truly meritocratic society can never be fully realised, and building subtle systems to address this imbalance. As is common with these meetings, several members of the group resigned in protest at some or all of the decisions made. Back to the narrative. I didn't see what happened to Vasquez as I was led on board their unusual craft. As they got nearer, I saw the vehicle was covered in satellite dishes, antenna, and even a few broadcast towers, and wondered just what was the point of this impossible vehicle. Amazingly, the inside was even more fantastic than the outside. It wasn't that it was bigger on the inside, or full of aliens, or anything inherently special. It was just spectacularly well designed. Despite being a newcomer to the vehicle, I instinctively knew my way around, and how everything worked. It wasn't some sleek, futuristic, rounded corners nonsense, or bedecked with works of art. It was simple, elegant, and functional. The post-apocalypse often has a very that'll-do attitude. Little time is spent worrying about ease of use and making everything work together well, but my understanding is that the same is true of before the apocalypse. Nearly everything was poorly designed. I was escorted to a waiting room, stocked with comfortable chairs and a selection of pre-apocalypse magazines. Not knowing what else to do, I took a seat and picked up a decades-old copy of NME. I was interrupted a few minutes later by a knock at the door. I put down the magazine as the door opened and a woman holding the clipboards stood in the doorway. You must be Richard, she said. I'm Jessica. The woman's accent was North American, possibly Philadelphia, but I'm, I was never great with accents. She walked in and took a seat next to me, and she, like the man who had escorted me on board, was very attractive. But where he looked more like a Hollywood leading man, she was more classically beautiful. Pale skin with jet black hair, wearing a rather severe haircut, but it only added to her beauty. She was about to say something when I interrupted her to ask about Vasca. Jessica sighed and put the clipboard down on her lap. Annette is currently in our custody. But she won't be harmed. We're actually big admirers of her and her work. But I'm sure you can understand. 
we just can't have her shooting people. I certainly could sympathise with her there. I then asked my next question. Why had they destroyed the church? And of course, not just the church, but most of the town. I'd have thought Annette would have told you all about us, she said a lot in surprise. We're the Honourable Society of Worthwhile Preservation. Now, while many of my listeners will be familiar with the Cultural Preservation Society, some might not be, so please allow me a moment to explain. The CPS was set up in the early days of the Central Government Authority to save works of art and cultural artefacts. Over the years, the organisation splintered into a dozen or so smaller organisations. Annette Vasca had been a member of the CPS and many of its successor organisations. Basically, they went around the world going to exceptionally dangerous places to save art. But Jessica was not part of the Cultural Preservation Society. She was a member of something quite different. They were, Jessica explained, a secret organisation founded to saving art and cultural artefacts. I told Jessica that they sounded like a fine organisation and didn't quite understand why they needed to be so secretive about it. Indeed, its remit was very similar to the CPS. Jessica's expression changed into something slightly less pleasant, something tougher. Jessica said some very nice things about the CGA. They had wonderful ideals and they wanted to help everyone and make the world like it was, and I could tell she was about to say but, and then she did. But the thing is, Richard, you can't save everything. It's just not possible, and you'll squander your resources trying to do it. Jessica had been forced out of the CGA for her extreme views and spent some time thinking about what to do, and then it came to her. If you couldn't save everything, then you had to make choices about what to save. What was more worthy or important? What was too difficult to get to, that sort of thing. Jessica did not pretend these were easy choices, but lambasted the CGA for not even trying to make them. What Jessica had to do was make those choices and focus the CGA's resources on the right things. Yes, it transpired that the Honourable Society of Worthwhile Preservation went around the world destroying things that they deemed not worthy to be saved. If they destroyed a second-rate museum, filled with unoriginal work, that was one less thing for the CGA to worry about. With the help of some wealthy individuals of like-minded disposition, they founded their secret society and went to work. Welcome to another edition of Who's On Board? Today I'm joined by Dr. Milan Radev, our on-board pathologist and coroner. Good afternoon, Dr. Radev. Hello, Mr. Oliver. Now, Dr. Radev, you are responsible for determining the cause of death for any member of the crew or the passengers. Correct. And this has kept you surprisingly busy. Certainly, we have had many, many deaths on board. Some days I am literally, no, figuratively, overwhelmed by the dead. When I tried to get figures on the total number of crew members and passengers who died, I was unable to get this information let alone looking into the various causes and deaths themselves. Why is this? I file my reports with the captain. I don't know what she does with them after that. But shouldn't the people on board know about what happened to their colleagues, their friends even? I would advise against making friends on board or in general. Besides, you don't want to know the details of these things, I assure you. For the listeners, I should point out Dr. Radev has started smoking. I would have thought a person in your line of work wouldn't smoke. 
With the mortality rate on this train, I wouldn't be too worried about chronic conditions. We all have our little poisons. Okay, well, of all the bizarre incidents, new plagues and terrible accidents that happen to those on board, is it hard to determine the cause of death with so many new threats? It is astonishingly easy. Once you open your mind to the new dangers of the world, the apocalypse is not very subtle. Back in the old days, this job was challenged. Now, well, being stung to death by giant bees is easy to determine. Your job seems to be on you a grim outlook, but I suppose that's an occupational hazard in your line of work. Is that a joke? No. Sorry, not at all. Moving on. You wonder what you'll die of, Mr. Oliver? What? How you will die. Accident. Illness. Murder. I don't... I don't like to think about it. Nobody likes to think about it, but we all do. As for you, you drink too much for a start, but that's understandable. The world is ended. Drink all you want. You're on this death trap. If the monsters outside don't get you, the radiation will. Radiation? From the engines? But it's safe. <laughs> safe. Safe, yes, safe. It's, uh... Watchword around here, but like I said, chronic illnesses, don't worry about them. Are you saying I shouldn't worry about them? Me, specifically? You, me, all of us on the train. How many times have you nearly died, Mr. Oliver? A few. More than a few. And those are just the ones you know about. You are being very frank, Dr. Radev. Are you sure your employer would appreciate that? They've put me on this train. What worse punishment could they give me? Okay, um, next question. Do you have any unsolved cases? Yes and no. I have a very useful designation for those few times when I don't know what happened. I have it printed on a big stamp. Unspecified apocalyptic death stamp. That just about covers everything. But you just don't do autopsies. You're here to investigate suspicious deaths. All deaths are suspicious. You mean, since the apocalypse? No, always. Every death of anyone, ever. All suspicious. Foul play is far more common than people think. Or coroners report. Why is that? Who do you think is doing all this killing? Husbands, wives, parents, children, especially children. No, a coroner finds a nice simple reason. Heart failure, stroke. You know, some people actually still think that people die peacefully in their sleep. They don't? You're looking at me like I've just said I believe in the Tooth Fairy. You really think that people just gently, quietly, with dignity let go of life? No, Mr. Oliver. You want to know what a suspicious death is? Telling me someone died quickly and with no suffering. That starts the alarm bells ringing. So you think people need the idea of this peaceful, dignified death, surrounded by loved ones? Enemies. When people die, they tend to be surrounded by people who hate them. Okay, so what do you think of as a good death? Something quick. The quicker the better. I want it to be so quick I'm dead before I feel anything. Well, Dr. Radev, that has both depressed and terrified me, and I'm sure my listeners feel much the same. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Mr. Oliver. Back to the narrative. I asked Jessica why they had targeted the Long Shadow. Evidently, England was quite the sensation right now, 
and it looked like the CGA would be focusing its efforts on the country. Until recently, the Honourable Society had been plying the horrific trade in Russia, an area the CGA had made a lot of progress in in recent years. In the long shadow, we left a few useful buildings. Anything else? Gone. Jessica explained that when Vasca had opened fire, they'd been preparing to clear up the mess of their work and leave a very neutral landscape. We spent a long time determining what should be saved, and most of that was devoted to the church, said Jessica, but eventually decided it was a poor example of Norman architecture, nothing that would be missed. Jessica was confident not even William the Conqueror himself would be too upset. Like many people, I have created lists of my favourite songs, films, and so on, but I never really thought it was inherent within that idea that anything not on the list should be destroyed. And the train station, I asked. That survived. Was that beautiful? No, considered Jessica. But it is useful. And we do save useful things. It'll make rebuilding easier. We only save what is beautiful or useful. When the CGA finds out about this, I sputtered angrily, but Jessica cut me off. They didn't limit their activities to working outside the CGA. They had infiltrated it too. They were a secret society in pursuit of saving the world would destroy a significant portion of it. The CGA were aware of them, Jessica told me, and while there had been arrests and action taken against them from time to time, Jessica was very much of the opinion that the CGA considered them useful. An organisation that did what needed to be done, and if they were ever discovered, the CGA could easily condemn them. That did not sound like the CGA I knew. They weren't perfect by any means, but they liked their rules and applied them equally to themselves. Still, the very existence of this organisation was deeply shocking. They were monsters, justifying terrible actions when they that was good in the long run. I was beginning to see why Vasca hated them so much. So, what are you going to do with Vasca? I asked nervously. Jessica smiled kindly. As I said, we're big admirers of her. We've crossed paths with her before, in the dangerous business of saving great art. She is truly remarkable far too useful for us to harm. But she does hate us with a murderous passion. Jessica again assured me that although they had incapacitated her, Vasca would be released unharmed. So Richard, look at the time, said Jessica, looking at her non-existent watch. We should get started. With what I asked? Well, Richard, we decide what is worth saving and who is worth saving. For some reason, this rather logical step in Jessica's thinking hadn't occurred to me. Of course, if they were all about saving the CGA's resources, then why just stop at art? There were millions and millions of people who still existed outside the CGA. To the Honourable Society, were they all worth saving? It also explained Vasca's behaviour. She didn't attack these people just because they destroyed art. They killed people. I fought back to their criteria. Useful beautiful, and I could feel panic rise in me. You're going to determine if I'm beautiful or useful, I asked, and a nervous laugh escaped from me. Jessica nodded, but she assured me that for their purposes, beauty didn't relate to anything as superficial as physical attractiveness. No, their tests were a bit more in-depth than that. This did not help. After all, I had seen some of their crew, and they were stunningly attractive, beautiful even. I had long considered concepts like beauty and usefulness beyond my grasp in any domain. Some people have said that my podcast has helped them through the apocalypse and post-apocalypse, 
but I think that even they would struggle to call my work beautiful, or even useful. If you will permit me a mild digression on the subject of beauty, I do think that a lot of things are beautiful, but that doesn't make it something attainable for me. Flowers, sunsets and oceans can be beautiful, but they've had millions, sometimes billions of years to get that right. I also believe that humans can achieve beautiful works of art and design. I would even hold that and open our minds to the wonders of the universe and biology, science can be beautiful. As to whether journalism can attain beauty, that is a genuinely difficult question. But since people do not call what I do journalism, that is of little help to me. And the less said about my actual youthful artistic endeavours, the better. As for being useful, that might be even harder. And if nothing else, the apocalypse has shown us who the truly useful people are. Basically, to call me a burden wouldn't be inaccurate. But damn it, even burdens have a right to exist. So Vasca went through this test, I asked? Oh yes, a few years ago, her whole team did, said Jessica. She was the only one who passed. We'll leave it there for this week. On the next episode, find out what exactly happened between Vasca and the Honourable Society. And of course, whether I can prove myself either beautiful or useful. At the End of the Line was written, performed and produced by Richard Oliver. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash chipmichael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savon podcast, which I highly recommend. In this week's episode, Dr. Milan Radev was played by A.R. Oliveri, who is the mastermind behind the fantastic dystopian audio drama 2298. For more information, look up 2298 on Twitter or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash 2298pod. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at postapodpodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice or make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com.